AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2022, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA and this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Welcome and thank you for attending today's AHLA podcast. Um, my name is Michael Ramey. I am a principal with PYA, leading our transaction advisory services. I'm joined today by Liesl Dunlop, who is a partner with Axon based in New York City. Liesl has more than 25 years of experience in antitrust and competitive issues, guiding clients through antitrust-related aspects of mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, and other combinations. Uh, she also represents clients in antitrust agency investigations, uh, including a myriad of major corporations and complex litigations. Uh, Liesl, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Great. Well. Um, our discussion today is based upon a recent article that you wrote for AHLA uh, titled uh, Provider M&A Faces New Antitrust Headwinds. And within that, you noted, uh, amongst other things, the shifting dynamics in federal antitrust enforcement. So I know we've got a lot of individuals who are listening that may have a varied level of understanding of just the uh, antitrust environment. Um, so if you could maybe start by level setting just a little bit and advise on kind of what some of those key pillars uh, on which the FTC has historically based their enforcement actions and how those may be changing uh, under new leadership and political direction. Sure. So what we're talking about here is review of transactions, be they hospital mergers, um, health insurer mergers, uh, provider practice mergers or vertical mergers that involve various uh, of those constituencies um, that are going to be reviewed under Section 7 of the Clayton Act, which is the provision that prohibits anti-competitive mergers. Um, those kinds of transactions are reviewed by the FTC or the Department of Justice Antitrust Division. Um, for the most part, today we'll be talking about the FTC. That's where the hospital and provider transactions generally fall to be um, reviewed. And so uh, traditionally, um, these deals have been reviewed under the horizontal merger guidelines. The most recent iteration of that was in uh, 2010. And from about 2004, I think you can kind of view the historic or the, the, the modern approach to the review of these transactions. Um, based, and since then, the FTC has brought a lot of merger challenges um, many in court, and it has been um, pretty successful over that period of time. Um, basically, the agencies or the FTC will look at uh, inpatient general acute care services when they're talking about hospitals. Um, that's a cluster market of you know, a range of services that most general acute care hospitals offer. Um, in some cases, you will kind of drill down into particular specialties or particular types of services um, where there might be concerns about a narrower scope of, of services. And then the agency will also look at the geographic market that's an issue. And, and there's often a lot of dispute about what the scope of the geographic market is. 
Um, the FTC focuses on it from a payer perspective, not so much um, patient flows, although where the patients go is, is certainly relevant to um, the, the network that a payer needs to develop. Um, and then the FTC, once it's defined its market, will um, look at what the market shares in that market are and applying the Hirschman-Herfindahl index will, will come up with a series of measures of concentration and what the transaction actually does to concentration to determine whether or not it's uh, presumptively um, harmful uh, to competition. Um, a case in which there is that presumption, um, the, there will have to be quite a lot of strong arguments in defence before the FTC would be convinced that there wouldn't be a problem. And when there is a problem, they will um, indicate to the parties that they're going to challenge, at which point the parties could um, just uh, stop the transaction, abandon the transaction, or um, the FTC will actually bring a challenge in court. And, and as I mentioned, they've, they've done that um, quite significantly over the years. Um, and when, when, when the FTC is arguing about competitive effects and considering competitive effects throughout this analysis, the focus has typically been on price effects. So the effects on um, payers um, in terms of the prices that they're paying for, for these services. Um, with some discussion about quality, um, usually in response, the, the parties will uh, bring forward things like uh, improved quality um, and, uh, you know, bringing uh, common electronic medical records and those type of factors. Um, but fundamentally, um, the concern will be about price impacts. So that, that's the existing framework. Um, in terms of how, how it might change going forward, um, you know, I don't think in the near term that basic framework is going to change uh, so substantially. We're going to continue to be concerned about concentration. And certainly in the statements coming out of the Biden administration, the directive to the FTC has been, you know, challenge um, mergers that lead to high concentration. And if anything, um, the, the concerns that we're hearing is that in the past, um, too many concentrative transactions have been allowed to go through. Um, certainly we've seen a lot of challenges, but there are probably a body of transactions that don't um, hit the presumptions um, that, that are in this kind of mid-range, but are still uh, concentrating markets. And so you may see more enforcement at the lower ends of those concentration levels um, not just the three to twos or merger to monopoly type situations. Um, and then the other um, major change that, that I think we're, we're already seeing is on the scope of the investigation, um, the range of competitive harms, the, the types of theories that the agency might be pursuing. And um, we've already seen the FTC withdraw its vertical merger guidelines and uh, talking about, as well with the DOJ, reviewing and reassessing the horizontal merger guidelines um, with, with a view to potentially expanding um, the scope of investigations that might raise concerns. Um, you know, there, there's been a discussion um, by the FTC chair in particular about a, a broader and more holistic approach to um, antitrust enforcement, not just in the mergers area, but, but generally across um, their, their work in uh, investigating um, 
misuse of market power or anti-competitive agreements or, or those types of, uh, of actions. And so you'll, you'll get um, more consideration of factors outside necessarily these strict uh, price effects. That's, that's interesting. You've mentioned considerations outside the price effects and, you know, uh, and, and some of the other more commonplace uh, analyses. Would you maybe expand just a little bit upon kind of what are those factors that are outside the typical guidelines that everyone is used to, to referencing in the past that, that are now being considered? So I think um, this is a, a movement that we've been seeing for the last maybe five years or so, um, maybe longer actually, that uh, there has been a big critique of the current um, paradigm of antitrust enforcement, which focuses on impact of, on consumer welfare, this economic concept of consumer welfare. And so over the last five to 10 years, you've had a lot of commentators um, criticizing the agency's reliance on um, looking at price effects and you know, defining markets and in strictly economic terms and not taking into account uh, broader concerns with maybe social concerns, impacts on workers, impacts on small business um, and, and things that, that might not normally have been considered at the core of antitrust review. Um, and the way that this, this is playing out in particular right now is a huge amount of focus on labour markets. So whereas before you would have gone into the agency and really the focus was on payers and provider dynamics and, you know, what kind of a network a payer needed, what the payers actually said about the transaction, what we're facing in addition to that is a lot of questions about workers, um, nurses, doctors, nurse practitioners, um, other kind of home and, and facilities-based health workers, what is going to happen to those workers in the transaction? And that opens up a whole lot of um, investigation of what, what is the current um, landscape for healthcare workers in this particular region? What are the alternative um, sources of employment for these people? Um, what are barriers to them moving around in terms of um, certifications? Maybe we're dealing with a cross-border area where there might be different state uh, certifications and licensing. Um, is this a, an, an industry and an area of the country um, where non-compete provisions might prevent people or other employment contract restrictions might prevent people from freely moving um, around? And, um, you know, that does raise um, a, lo a lot of uh, questions about when, when you're doing a transaction, you know, occasionally redundancies, impacts on, on, on your bottom line in terms of your labour cost are going to be one of the factors that um, lead to um, improved efficiencies of the combined organisation. So you've got this kind of um, push-pull of, you know, concern about impact on workers on the one hand and yet um, pro-competitive benefits of the transaction in terms of lowering cost um, on the other. Um, I, I think right now the, the healthcare labour market is so tight, um, it, it's uh, going to be interesting to see if uh, it is possible to uh, prove an adverse impact on um, some of these categories of healthcare workers. But uh, that, that is one area that, uh, that we're 
we're very interested in seeing how it pans out. Um, the DOJ and I think John Cantor um, at a recent um, program that the agencies ran on labor market impacts in transactions generally, not just healthcare, did say that you know labor markets are like any other markets. Um, you know the merging parties might be on the other side of the market from what we're used to, but the the same competition. Uh, analysis um, considerations come into come into play, and so um, we we can expect to see over the next months uh, probably some transactions being challenged um, on that basis. Maybe not solely on that basis, but I, I I think we can expect to start seeing those kind of claims coming through in the challenges. Um, a couple of a couple of other areas that you know that I think that that's the major thing I'm seeing, but um, you know, quality has always been a really important aspect of um, efficiencies claims, benefits, impacts on quality. I think we're going to see a lot more focus on that. Um, and there could be some, some new kind of ideas that are a little outside the realm of, you know, economic impacts. So, um, you know, social impacts, um, impacts on uh um, particular socioeconomically disadvantaged populations, things like that, may may get a little bit more play. Lisa, that sounds like uh, the defense um, is going to be a lot more subjective than objective uh, on these. Whenever you're taking it out of economic and market share parameters into questions of impacts on the broader labor market, uh, um, the the quality of care that's being to be uh, resulting from the combination of, do you agree with that? I, I do. And, and at the same time, that's a big challenge for both sides because qualitative impacts are very, very hard to assess, um, particularly predictive, predictively. And, and that's what you're doing when you're looking at a, at a transaction that is about to happen, um, hopefully, that you're, you're, you're crystal ball gazing a little bit. Um, you're, you're postulating that we can deliver on certain um, certain of those kind of more qualitative, squishy kind of um, areas. And it, it's the, the, the proof that you're going to have to bring to the table um, is, is going to be important. And how do you develop that proof? How do you actually... Um, set out a plan and criteria and things in a way that that is going to be persuasive and uh, actionable. Great. Um, switching gears just a little bit, going back to some of your pre your prior comments, you mentioned um, the increased enforcement by the FTC, uh, particularly on hospital transactions. Now, we've witnessed in prior administrations that there has uh, been a history of I'll say um, differing opinions between maybe the, the federal and the state at the federal and the state level um, on whether or not transactions should move forward. And we've even seen uh, transactions consummated under things like certificate of public advantage or COPAs um, in various different states. Um, given this recent pronouncement, how do you think this increased federal enforcement effort is going to impact those dynamics between the FTC and state attorney generals or whoever has the, the regulatory oversight for these transactions at the state level? Now, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, to, to what extent that dynamic is going to change? 
Um, I think, you know, those examples that you, that you mentioned, um, COPAs and separate state settlements, I mean, I think that's reflective of the really broader role of uh, state government in healthcare delivery. Um, you know, the FTC is really only looking at these transactions from a competition standpoint and, you know, price competition and, and quality of competition to a lesser extent. The state AG's offices and, and other state departments um, are looking at a, a much broader range of considerations. So they, they'll have their people who are focused on competition policy who are looking at the same things that the FTC is looking at and, and often, you know, in close collaboration with the FTC and, and working in step with them. But you'll also have, you know, various uh, other constituencies there. You'll have charities bureaus. You'll have, um, when you're dealing with payer mergers, you'll have departments of insurance, insurance commissioners. Um, you'll have departments of health, of course. Um, and so, you know, the, the state government has a broader range of uh, concerns than just the competitive aspect of the transaction as, a, as it applies to um, commercial payers. You know, they're going to be interested in um, the impact on uh, the public pay side of the equation. They're going to be concerned about uh, sustainability, um, about continuing services to um, rural areas or um, socially, uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged groups who, who may be reliant on a particular um, um, facility. And, and also more generally in improving various criteria of public health. Um, I think in the uh, ballot uh, transaction, Wilmot Mountain States, you know, that was a big concern um, that the various kind of indicia of public health in, in the region that that system served um, were, you know, critically low in some, in some instances. And so a major um, reason for permitting that transaction to proceed under a COPA, a certificate of public advantage, was to allow um, new programs and um, you know, coordinated programs to improve health in that region. And those are the kinds of considerations you're seeing given play in, for example, the Pennsylvania AG's um, settlement with Jefferson Einstein recently, um, initially, the FTC and the Pennsylvania AG's office brought a challenge to the transaction. That was one of the rare instances that the FTC was not successful um, and they were planning to appeal. Uh, but in the meantime, the, um, the state attorney general did a, a settlement with the parties and expressly to allow um, Northern Philadelphia um, healthcare market to be improved by that transaction. Um, and most of these settlements contain fairly detailed provisions around um, pricing, giving pricing protection, um, as well as um, detailed provisions around meeting uh, various uh, milestones and uh, you know, thresholds over time about you know, achieving the efficiencies that are predicted and claimed um, will result from the merger. And we see this, we saw the same thing up in Massachusetts with the ILAGI. So, you know, it's, it's a complicated dynamic. The FTC has traditionally been very hostile to those, um, you know, types of actions by the states. Um, in Wilmot Mountain State, the FTC 
um, participated in the COPA process, submitted, made a lot of submissions about the adverse impact on competition and why permitting the transaction to go ahead would be a bad idea. Um, ultimately, they weren't successful. And, um, you know, so it's, it's hard to understand how that is going to change. Will the agency suddenly become more accepting and cognizant of the social benefits of transaction to the, um, uh, you know, and, and look at that instead of or, or allow those considerations to counter the price effects of a transaction? Um, I'm, I'm not sure that that's how it's going to come out. Okay. Yeah, a lot of unknowns at this point, I'm sure. Um, Another unknown that you mentioned um, in your article had to do with uh, the notification that prior consummated transactions still may be subject to further review. Um, have you seen any indications thus far as to maybe what type of characteristics might invoke that type of a review or how far back that might go for those, especially who are participating, who maybe uh, a part of a, a transaction that recently um, recently consummated. Uh, any any words of wisdom there as to um, who needs to be on the lookout? So, you know, the FTC has always been able to challenge a consummated merger. Um, and, you know, a lot of healthcare transactions actually fall below the threshold for hearts got ready no notification. Um, that, that's the, the law that gives the FTC the ability to look at a transaction and stop a transaction before it's happened. Um, so a lot of deals that don't get reported don't have that uh, statutory bar to close and they'll go ahead and close. And it's only after they've been consummated that the FTC will find out about it, usually because um, there's been some impact on the market. Prices have gone up quite dramatically and there'll be a complaint um, to the FTC and they'll start investigating. And you, I mean, Evanston Northwestern um, was an example of that. Um, and then uh, you know, St. Luke, Luke Saltzo was another example of that. And after the challenge, um, there's some settlement. So in St. Luke's, um, they were required to, to spin off the, um, the um, position practice that had been acquired. So you, you've, you've always had that. Um, I think the, the difference right now is when you did a Hart Scott Redino notification and you got cleared, either in a you know initial 30 to 60 day period from you know a, an initial investigation, or you might have gone through a second request. You know you were safe. Um, uh, theoretically, of course, the agency could come back to you, um, but usually after a Hart Scott Redino process. Um, your transaction was, you know, you, ha you had a fair degree of confidence that your transaction was okay. And I think what we've been seeing out of the FTC, um, presumably due to workloads, because there have been a tremendous number of transactions filed um, over the last year with, with, you know, filing numbers far exceeding what had been going on before, um, is that you'd, you'd make a filing, um, you'd have an initial investigation which you would normally have expected to result in no action. Um, and at the end of the waiting period, as that waiting period is expiring, the agency doesn't issue a second request, which is where they would normally go if they had concerns. 
um, but instead sends a letter saying, we're going to keep looking at this. And um, if you want to close, you know, you're, you're allowed to close because there's no Hartscott-Rodino Act um, problem, but you do so at your own risk. Um, and you bear the risk if we keep investigating and subsequently find that this is a bad deal. Um, so when those letters started coming out, everyone was pretty concerned. And, you know, what does this mean? And should we really not close our deal? Um, and, it, you know, it was incredibly disruptive. Um, I think that now that we've seen a fair number of them, um, you know, people are closing through them. But there, it does leave you with this uh, discomfort that, um, you know, you could get an investigation down the line and, uh, you know, that, that your deal could be reopened. So, you know, my concern here really, I don't think that much has changed on the, on the smaller below the radar kind of deals. I mean, they're always going to be there and, um, you know, the risks are in how the transaction actually plays out when it's closed. Um, I think the, the change that we're seeing here is in the deals that are actually reported and um, what might happen even after you clear HSR and close your transaction. That's helpful, Lisa. Thank, thank you. Um, Lisa, one more question that I have for you. And, and again, going back to your article, you mentioned that um, not only are health systems in focus, but also physician practices, other ambulatory services. Um, now, when we've talked about so far, everything has been under the purview of the FTC. Um, we're also seeing a lot of payers who are involved in acquisitions, specifically of physician practices, other ambulatory services. My understanding is that that invokes then, you know, Department of Justice. So uh, you mentioned the, and I'm, I'm using quotes here, whole of government competition policy as something that came out. Um, so do you see maybe the um, FTC and other agencies kind of coming together to evaluate some more of these, these transactions that uh, may have been bifurcated uh, previously? So, um, you know, on the payer provider kind of um, merger, you know, we, we, we've, we've always had those. And um, I think a big change there is that they were reviewed under, well, the, the vertical merger guidelines were only brought in last year, but the guidelines basically reflected agency practice up to that point. Um, and going forward, those guidelines have been uh, rescinded. So, you know, there are questions around um, what, what are the criteria that the FTC or DOJ are using to look at vertical transactions of, of provider um, payer combination or um, maybe ancillary services acquisitions that aren't strictly horizontal overlaps. Um, and, and before um, earlier last year, um, we did see the FTC announcing a retrospective review of past um, provider um, physician transactions and ancillary services transactions. So, you know, I think that they're gearing up to do more work in that area. The, the whole of government approach is a little bit different, though. Um, 
that that was a directive that every government um, department look at its scope of, of responsibilities and see to what extent competition policy needs to be taken into account and whether there are ways in which different government departments, not just the FTC and DOJ, can promote competition um, through their own policies. And I think in the healthcare area, the main um, you know, institution there is, is going to be CMS and are there things that CMS can do through its policies to influence competition um, in healthcare markets? You know, you may see more collaboration between CMS and FTC DOJ in terms of um, trying to achieve more competition in the healthcare system. Um, I mean, particularly through, through Medicare, obviously, and, and Medicare Advantage um, and the Medicaid program. Um, so I, I think that that could raise a, a number of really interesting areas for um, study and investigation. Don't know how it's actually going to play out in a transaction review. Well, Liesl, really appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you for sharing your insights and thank you for the article. There's a obviously a lot developing here. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be continued focus uh, over the year as the uh, enforcement continues to evolve and we understand a little bit more. So thanks again, Liesl. And uh, thanks, thanks for Michael. those attending. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.